This is Sermonsmith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. Thanks for listening. My guest today is J.R. Foresteros. J.R. is the teaching pastor at Catalyst Church, which is just outside of Dallas, Texas. J.R. is also a notable podcaster himself and even an author. He's written a book recently, but you might be familiar with him through a number of podcasts that he's part of. He'll talk about those in today's podcast, but of course, because of that, that means he has a great mic and a great voice, a better voice than mine. And he also has great ideas, which you'll hear today. I do want to ask a favor of all of you who listen and just kind of give you an update on what's been going on. I've been asking for iTunes reviews, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, I want to push our attention a little towards our Patreon support, patreon.com slash sermonsmith, which, which I mention each time. Right now, we have five supporters on Patreon, and each interview, each just general interview, uh, gets anywhere from twelve to 1,500 downloads in the first month. And so, we don't even have one support, 1% of our listeners who support the podcast on Patreon, and, and, and that's okay. Not everybody's avail- able to do it, and uh, I'm sure those numbers might be pretty typical, but I'd love to see if we can bump that up and maybe get to 1%. So if you would consider that, help us get to 15 supporters through Patreon to help cover the costs of my time and the expenses that come with Sermon Smith. I do it because I love it, but it also does take away from some of my other uh, time for some of my bivocational work along time, alongside the, the pastoring that I do for a church. So if you would consider that, it, it would super be helpful. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Sermon Smith. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the reviews. Thanks for the sharing on social media. And here we are with J.R. Forrester. To make sure I get this right, tell me how to pronounce your last name. So my wife always tells people, say Forrest and then Arrows. Forrest Arrows. Okay. I had it right then. Nice. Maybe maybe from hearing it before on Productive Pastor. That's good for a lot of gringos don't get it right the first time. So good job. What's the background of it? (laughs) Uh, Call me a gringo. It's it's Spanish. Um, But my wife and I actually, when we got married, chose a new last name that we took together. Rather than oh. like hyphenating or smashing together, or one of us taking the others or whatever, and so we we settled on the concept of radical hospitality and just that idea, like in scripture, of welcoming the stranger, and then also sort of being the stranger. And so we uh, we kind of explored that concept and that terminology in several different languages, and it came down to German and Spanish because my wife is fluent in Spanish and I'm fluent in German or fluent esque. Um, and we played paper rock scissors and Spanish one. <laughs> what would it have been in German? Auslander. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So. Well, see, this is why I start recording because that's totally going in. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the... Yeah. So, so, so we're off and running. <laughs> that's great. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so all that to say, tell us about... Um, Tell us about Catalyst. Tell us about your church where you where Yeah, you so it, it, is a, it is a part of the Church of the Nazarene, and uh, the church itself is turning 13 this year. Uh, it's, it, uh, it started as a house church. It Really a really interesting story. There was a, there was a guy who was a youth pastor who, who moved across the Metroplex to Fort Worth, which if you're, if you're not familiar with Texas, that's like technically in the same sort of metropolitan area, but it's like two hours away because it's Texas. Um, and so uh, several of his youth had connected with him so deeply that they were driving to Fort Worth to 
be a part of his church. And and they wow. all sort of recognized that was not a long-term solution. And so he worked with one of those youth to plant a, kind of a house church on this side of our side of the Metroplex, the east side of Dallas. And it bounced around for a couple of years. Eventually, they reached out to our denomination and brought in a couple of people to do it full time. And then I followed the the kind of the teaching arm of that. So a guy named Levi Lowry, who was the, the teaching pastor, uh, and I followed him. So I've been here almost four years and all through all of the different incarnations of the church, what has unified our congregation is a desire. We, we sometimes say we're a church for people who don't like church. We also say because we're in Texas, we're a church for everyone else because, you know, in Texas, there's like 500 churches on every block. And if like traditional church context works for you, you're going to be very happy here because there's going to be so many churches for you to choose from that help you connect with God and help you, yeah. you know, minister and flourish. But if you're the kind of a person where traditional evangelical form- forms of church don't really connect, whether you had some kind of a traumatic experience or whether you just found them to be uh, sort of obscure or obtuse, uh, there's not a whole lot of other options for you here. You know, everyone kind of does the same sort of stuff. And so we wanted to be a a church, we said church for everyone else, right? So we're kind of kind of rock and roll, very come as you are. And uh, we, we put a big emphasis on hospitality in the worship event, making sure that everything we do is accessible and engaging for someone who has zero church background. And that that's everything from the way we do the call to worship, to uh, preaching, to even our invitation to the table because we do weekly Eucharist. And, and so... Everything we do is geared around making sure that anyone can access it and understand it regardless of their their church background. Uh, and and then, yeah, we, we try to mobilize our people then also to be engaged in that sort of relational ministry in their everyday lives. And the, the geographic or the demographic context, I suppose, sure. is suburban Dallas? Suburban Dallas. So we're in a little town called Rowlett. It's a bedroom community. There's not much to do in Rowlett, though they're, the city's trying to change that up. So that's that's even interesting, too, because as a congregation and me as a pastor, we're involved with the city sort of imagining how can how can we make Rowlett a place where people want to do more than just sleep? You know, because right now, if it's a Friday night, no one is saying, let's let's see what's popping off at the Rowlett nightlife, right? <laughs> like it's it's right. everyone's either going to Dallas or going to go take their kids to see a movie. And so um, this, this, the community context is evolving. Our church uh, demographically is relatively young. Uh, I would say most of our congregation is under 50. Uh, and then also it is... It is a white church uh, culturally, but we have, I think, a higher than average number of persons of color who are a part of the congregation. And so that's another big question we've been asking in the last couple of years is how do we move towards a more truly multicultural um, congregation rather than just a multi-ethnic monocultural congregation, if that distinction makes sense? Sure, sure. And I, I assume then, based on your location and based on what you described, that you you certainly found a, a niche of people, so to speak, who um, are, you know, because you think sub- the, the stereotype is suburban Dallas, like you named, everybody already has a church. But I would imagine even in suburban Dallas, in now that we're in 2018, there's plenty of people who chucked church. And so they're trying to imagine if they're going to come back. Do, do you find you have many people who have no church background at all? Or are my imaginations about 
suburban Dallas being everybody's <laughs> everybody's got some kind of church background. So it's still it's still mostly everyone has some church background. Like they at least went when they were kids. Uh, but there are a few folks who really have no exposure to church at all, other than in Texas, it's relatively unavoidable. Even if you're talking about politics, like all, like that's always a part of the campaigns and stuff like that. I mean, you, so, so I don't think it's possible to live in Texas and never think about church, but, but if, right. if you have no church background, then it's all that's being filtered through the media, which let's be frank is not great right now. Um, and so, it's interesting because we're getting more and more and more folks who actually don't have any uh, personal background in church. Um, and and so we're having to actually the, so this is sort of like the bleeding edge of where our leadership is right now. We've long identified ourselves as a church for people who don't like church, which means they have some kind of church background that they're reacting against. They have some kind of experience they're reacting against. And now we're moving towards trying to engage people who don't care about church, which are those people who don't have any experience, positive or negative, with church uh, personally. And so those, those folks are different because the people who have some kind of church background usually like sort of have this foundational conviction that they ought to be in church because they did it when they were kids or or whatever. It's the right thing to do. Fill in the blank reason why. And so when they come to catalyst, they say, Oh, like this is that thing I'm supposed to do, but I actually also like it. Okay, cool. The people that we're trying to move towards engaging now, they're people who don't care about church. They don't have that found foundational bedrock conviction that they ought to be in church. So if they, if they even accidentally show up one Sunday, they'll probably say very kind, complimentary things about everything. The people were really nice. The music was fun. The preaching was really, they'll use words like inspiring. Right. Right. They'll say, Oh, so see you next week. And they'll be like, "Mm, no, probably not. But thank you. And and they're genuine, (laughs) right? They're just like, thank you so much. It was so fun. It was really neat. And then that's it. Right. So, so now we're, we're trying to move into thinking about how do we engage those folks with the good news about Jesus? Cause that's, that's a really different model than what we are currently doing. So then I, my question, and you know, this leads to my next question and I'll nuance it a little bit, but you know, the question I like to ask knowing your context and your background is what is the role of preaching in the life of catalyst? And so maybe it's even a question of what has been the role of preaching and how are you finding that, even in this redirect that you're describing that you've had to shift or change how you think about preaching. Yeah. So I think the big, the big, the role that it has been is we want to, um, okay. So I want to use my words very carefully here because I am a mystic at heart, but we want to demystify church in a way that Mm -hmm. some unchurched people, people who don't like church, uh, they have seen faith and they've seen God and they've seen church as this like esoteric, bizarre, inaccessible thing. And that's usually, again, because of some leadership that they've had in the past, or even because of the, like, they grew up in a King James only church, or they grew up in one of those like pulpit pounding fire and brimstone churches, or they grew up in a church where the leadership of the churches didn't actually care whether they understood things or not. They just cared whether they did the right things. And so yeah. we're, we're trying to, make it accessible to them. We're trying to help them see that the good news is for them too. And God is for them too. And there are ways for them to connect. So um, that is preaching is then in a way invita- an invitation to them uh, to 
enter into the mystery of God and, in a way that that feels accessible. So people are always saying about our preaching team that uh, it's the first time they've ever felt like the Bible mattered in their everyday life. Hmm. And we think that's a win. We're like, that. that's great. You know, and, uh, and even like early in my preaching, I, I made, I don't know if we're talking technique at this point, but, um, not yet. We, we can though. So, well, uh, l- let's circle back to this thing. Cause I made a big change in the way I write my sermons based on this movement that I was trying to accomplish because I found I was preaching in a way that actually discouraged people from entering into scripture on their own. Uh, and I was encouraging them just to wait for Sunday for me to tell them what the Bible said. So I actually made some intentional changes to my preaching style uh, because I was, that was not the goal, right? My goal was, this is a thing that you can do too. And it's not, it, it's not automatic. Like it takes work. You can't just crack open Leviticus and read it and expect to be an expert, yeah. but, but there are ways that you can learn to read scripture such that you are being connected to the God who is the author of the scripture. Uh, so, so that's, that, okay. that's where we have been. I yeah. think a movement that we're going to need to make is one that pushes that to the next stage, which is where preaching is going to have to also begin moving towards equipping people to uh, embody the scripture for the sake of other people. Whereas largely at this point, it's been how do how do I and my preaching team, how do we as the, the preachers make the teaching accessible for the person sitting in the pew, listening, receiving the message? And I think we're going to have to now move towards saying, okay, so if we're talking about people who don't care about church, there's a good, good, good chance that they're never going to come in this building and worship with us collectively, or that if they do, that's going to be much further down the path of their spiritual journey. Uh, So that means that the person sitting in the pew receiving the message, they're going to be the primary point of spiritual contact. Whereas what we've been essentially doing before this is saying like, if you can just, you know, build up enough relational capital to convince your friend to come in the door, then the, the pastors will take it from here. Right. Like that's been sort of the, the yeah, yeah. You, you don't really have to know much. Like we'll handle it. Right. But that's going to, we're going to have to, we're, we're changing that. So our sermons are going to have to be more intentionally um, equipping people, not only to read scripture and apply it in their own lives, but then also like how to, uh, how to relate scripture to the lives of their unchurched friends and family that they love, that they're trying to uh, gospel or evangelize or good news. Uh, so there's, there's going to be like, a, again, I don't see that as a fundamentally different task, more as like a, a, a next level of what we're currently doing. Uh, but that's, that is going to change what we're doing in our sermons to a degree. So uh, this isn't something you've undertaken yet, or is it something you're slowly transitioning toward? Slowly transitioning towards. Yeah. Yeah. So. Got it. All right. So uh, yeah, I think we will even dive into that a little bit more. Let me get a little more context, which is a a real simple question, but your title is teaching pastor. And usually when I look at a staff, when I see somebody teaching pastor, it's because there's always like, there's also like a senior pastor, executive pastor, not always, but I don't see anything like that. So what's your, what's the leadership model look like? So we have a leadership team that is lay persons in the congregation. I am functionally also the lead pastor. Right. Okay. Uh, 
but, and I'm the only full-time staff pastor. Uh, I have my children's and youth pastors are volunteer. My worship pastor is part-time and we're bringing on now a uh, connections pastor who's also volunteer. Uh, so I'm the only full-time staff person. Uh, I'm the only, uh, full-time vocational pastor. So I am, I am doing the leadership as well. Uh, but, uh, I'm, it's kind of a complicated story. I was originally a co-pastor and my co-pastor left. And so I've now sort of assumed the lead role, but uh-huh. I just, I like the title teaching pastor. So I've hung on to it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I wondered if there's, I've never thought this before until we're talking just now, but I've wondered if there is a safety for skeptical people where there's not somebody who has a title of senior pastor, lead pastor. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There's a, so I wondered if you can just take credit and say, yeah, we did that intentionally <laughs> because of that. <laughs> but no, you just, you like the title and you had it and you kept it. So that's fair enough. Um, well, let's talk then about, let's talk then more about like long range planning. Like as you yeah. map out sermon series, what does that look like there? So since I've come to cat, when I came to catalyst, they were on the, they preached the lectionary. Okay. During from Advent to Pentecost, and then during yeah. during the ordinary time in between those two seasons, they kind of did whatever they wanted. Um, that was a shift for me. I don't love lectionary. Uh, I love the church calendar and I love the seasons of the church, but I I don't love the lectionary itself. And for the last almost four years, I've I've just kind of gone along with that model. Uh, what I what I. What I don't love about that is I feel in in some ways there, there have been more times than not where there has been a tension for me between what I really where I really feel the church is and where I, I feel a need to speak a pastoral word to the congregation and then what the lectionary what I can honestly say in exegeting the lectionary texts. Right. right. Um, that could just be that I'm not creative enough to do both, uh, which I'm happy to receive that criticism from. I know we have lectionary lovers that listen, I'm sure. So um but where where I tend to thrive is in series crafting and long-term planning. So right now we have our sermons planned all the way, th- uh, the, the series and many of the texts already through the beginning of Advent this year. Okay. So that's a little more than six months out. Um, right. And then, and so probably over the summer is when I will look at uh, doing, you know, and then, and then I just do seasons, Advent, Epiphany, Lent. Uh, I'll, I'll look at starting to get some of those together. Uh, so I, over the summer, you know, summer is one of those, I, I try to think about what's good for our folks. And we know that, you know, summers, summer series, you don't want to do things. I guess I should back up and say, I love series. Uh, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people don't, but what I love about series is the ability to build bigger and more complicated arguments f- with the congregation or, or teach more, uh, in more depth, uh, in, in educational philosophy, it's called scaffolding where you, you, huh. You teach one idea and then you build on top of that idea the next with the next lesson and on and on and on. So you scaffold the lessons up so that by the time you get to the end of an idea, you've been able to do something much bigger than you would have been able to do otherwise. Our sermons right. are 25 minutes max total. Usually uh, when you add in communion and, and all of that, it ends up more around 30, but we try to keep around 25 ish minutes and you just, you can't do a lot of depth in 25 minutes if you're also going to make it really narrative and, and things like that. And so uh, I like series because I, f- I feel like we can take the congregation somewhere a little bit more deliberately than we could with just single standalones. 
so, so I, I tend to think in terms of series, what's the big idea we want to do here? What's the big movement? And then how do we get, what are, you know, what are the component pieces? And if I can, you know, break it down into four or six component pieces, that's a, that's a really nice series. Um, and so, oh, please. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, so like when I look at, when I look at the, the, the calendar of the church year, I, I start with, you know, where, what's that intersection of the, the narrative of scripture, what the spirit is doing in my life personally, and then also where the spirit is moving in the congregation. Uh, what, what are the things that I know through my pastoral interactions with our people, uh, through what's going on in our larger culture? What are the things that, that I think the spirit is, is wanting to say to our particular church in this particular time? And then, and then how do we begin to build again, just take those ideas, try to break them down and build some series around them. And, uh, I think the themes of those ideas lend themselves more readily to different times of the year. If we attend to the themes of Advent, the themes of Epiphany, the themes of Lent, the themes of Eastertide, uh, summer is one of those where you can't really do a a, a series that hangs together real strong because people are just all over the map over the summer. And and we know that they're not always going to go back and catch the, the sermons and podcasts or whatever. So we try to do things that are loosely connected, but, that if you miss a week or two, you don't feel like you you shouldn't even bother showing up because you don't know what's going on. Right. Um, whereas during the school year, we can do series that are a little more tight, uh, a little more tightly constructed. Uh, and then again, we just we we understand we're going to have guests, and so we spend a little bit of the beginning of each message recapping. You know, so last week we covered this, and that set us up to say this this week. And uh, again, people really tend to like that because by the time you get to the end of a series, they they feel like they've gone on a journey, and they feel like they have you know, a deeper understanding or deeper insight or new practice to inhabit uh, that they wouldn't have had after just one Sunday. And do you find that you're, this is one of the things, I, I mean, I enjoy series too. We kind of follow the same idea of we pay attention to the seasons. We um, we're ambivalent about the lectionary, whereas sometimes it's good to just rest into it. And sometimes we want to, um, <laughs> you know, sometimes we're like, no, let's move away from it. Um, but the rest of the year, you know, we see that as a value for seasons. But one of the things we, or I'm sorry, for series, but one of the things we really wrestle with, with is still how inconsistent our people are. Is that pretty true for you? Or Oh, are, yeah. Are I mean, we're pretty regular. Oh, we're not any different than any other church. I think the, uh, the, the uh, really faithful church folk are like twice a month, right? <laughs> like my, my church board are twice a month. <laughs> yeah. um, by by and large. And so um, I, I think that is one of the benefits of doing series. And then, I mean, for us, I'm sure you do the same thing. We just make our sermons really easy to find afterwards. Uh, we, yeah. you know, we, we live stream and it's all available on YouTube, like immediately after the gathering is finished. And uh, we, I podcast all mine through, through my own personal podcast feed. The church has a podcast feed. So we make it really easy to find the messages. So if people, I think the folks, the folks who want to catch up can catch up really easily. And, uh, we also work really hard in the individual messages to make sure that if they're, if someone did miss last week, we make sure there's a recap and that's less, that's less to reward people who skipped, so to speak, or who had another commitment or whatever than it is to be hospitable to our guests who this may be their first time in church. And so we don't want them to feel like they came in in the middle of a conversation and, and, and don't have any guidance on what's coming next. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you you said you like planning, and you're planned through. You know, you got six months out. So, what do those plans look like right now? I mean, you've got series all the way broken down to each individual message and primary text and thesis, or what is that? Uh, look each like? individual text uh, all the way through the end of the summer, and then the the movements of the next three series after that, which will take us to Advent. Uh, so. As we in the next couple of weeks, in fact, I'll, I'll be breaking down the September series, which is like our back to school series. And then in October, we have a six week series because we're going to be doing our small group. Uh, we kind of do small groups in in chunks, you know, we'll do six or eight weeks at a time and then give a break and all that. And so uh, we have like kind of some rough ideas of what that's going to look like. So I'll just I'll start scaffolding those out, talking about what the big movements in those are. And we always end the church year by doing a series kind of exploring who our who our congregation is and what our core values are. And again, we're in the middle of a big transition in, in the model of our church. And so I'm I'm anticipating as we spend the summer doing some think tanks and talking about direction of the church and all of that, that 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 series at the end of the church year, right before we move into Advent, is uh, is gonna actually the con- a lot of the content is going to come out of what we're doing as a congregation through the summer uh, in these sort of pockets of dreaming and prayer. So uh, we'll do that. And then, yeah, and then I'll start. So I kind of like to have it at least, at least three months planned out pretty hard. And mm-hmm. then the next three months sketched out. And then as the, you know, as we move into that next season, you know, just planning the next three months that were sketches and then sketching out the next three or six months that were, abstract or, or, you know, nothing at that point. And a lot of times I'll, again, I do that with my preaching team, uh, either via email or we may try to do meetings and stuff like that. I'll, I'll talk with my church board, just kind of take a pulse of the congregation. You know, where do you think people are? What are, what are we missing right now? Or what do we need? Or, or, or just things like that, that kind of rest in my head. I'm, I'm a very collaborative thinker. And so my ideas are always better once they've been bounced off other people. And those other people have a chance to really improve them significantly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you've, you've used, so, I mean, I've done, I think you're going to be 95 or 96. I, I don't always have the right number in mind, but I've done a lot of these and I never get tired of them, but I also appreciate when somebody's using some sort of language that hasn't been used before, which is, or at least maybe nuanced in the way you are, which is this idea of a series has, the scaffolding concept for sure, but even that that movement to it, like it, it almost sounds like even as you're looking at what you're going to do in that back to school series in September and into October, November, that even though you haven't broken it all the way down, it, do you have some kind of this is where I know people are as we begin this series and by the end of the series, I want them to have this practice or this understanding. Yes, like when yeah. you're talking about the movement, is that what you're writing out? That's right. So uh, our September series, one of, one of the things that we're trying to introduce as a way of equipping our congregation rather than just uh, informing or educating, right, is uh, is is doing deep. So we have five spiritual practices. I'm kind of adding a sixth one unofficially. We're going to make it official sooner or later. Uh Spiritual practices we encourage people to do. So that's uh, reading scripture, prayer, uh, meditation, fasting, keeping a Sabbath, and giving. And uh, meditation is what I'm kind of sneaking in there and eventually going to add <laughs> explicitly. And uh, so I, I, we've never taken an entire series to just dive into what is this practice and why is it important and how do we do it. So in September, we're going to start that. We're going to do four weeks on what scripture is. 
and how we read scripture. And so I'm going to start from a place where I assume most folks read scripture for information. In other words, they treat it like a textbook or a roadmap with another, you know, analogy a lot of people use, unfortunately. And, uh, and, and treating it as a, this is a book that has information in it that I don't have in my head. And once I get it in my head, then I'll be a better Christian or whatever, you know, however, the, however they articulate that. And so we want to move them to a place where uh, scripture is a place where we encounter God and where we are swept up into God's story. And so we don't read scripture for information. We read scripture for transformation. And what's the difference between those two methods of reading? Uh, how does that even affect what we understand scripture to be? Because, you know, if we understand scripture as a textbook, then it can't have any contradictions in it and everything has to harmonize and yeah, all of that. Yeah. Whereas if we read it for transformation and we understand that, and so I, I, I'm a big Pete Enns fan. And so where he, where he says that uh, much like Christ, scripture is fully authored by humans and fully inspired by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, both it's not 50, 50 or 25, 75 or, or how, you know, however we try to break it down. And, and so moving people to understand the scripture like that. And then again, if, if that's what scripture is, that, then how does that change how we read scripture and, and why we read scripture? So that's, that's like the, that's the big movement. We have four weeks to do it. So I'm going to be sitting down and thinking through like, what are, what are the steps along the path and moving from reading it as information to reading it for transformation? And, and how do we, how do we invite people along those steps? Um, and again, that's, a, that's an easy, I mean, people, people love to talk about what, you know, what the Bible is and are there contradictions in the Bible or how can we trust it when it's been translated? So I mean, I mean, you, I do a podcast called The Story Man, and every time we talk about the Bible and how we read the Bible or have a guest on to talk about that, those are always our, our most listened to episodes. Uh, I think people just people are afraid to ask those questions. And so when you have someone who can help them ask those questions in a way that is safe and God honoring and ultimately gives them good news, uh, it's exciting. And then again, you talk about trying to go out into the world and engage folks who are outside the church about these issues. Well, we're, we're giving them some wonderful tools to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That, and I assume that idea that, that Pete ends idea, that's inspiration and incarnation, right? Correct. Is that the name of that book? That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, great thoughts on that one. Uh, all right. So th- thanks. That's like I say, it's always fun to hear something that's at least either a new idea or at least nuanced in a way that hasn't been before. So I love the way that you, well, kind of and, tackle that. Yeah. Let me tack onto that. I, so I got, I came up with that idea. Well, it was not original to me, I guess more, I should say like, I, I latched onto it when I was, uh, I was doing college ministry and I would teach these theology classes at a, at a state college, uh, Baptist student union, you know, so was, these were, these aren't, they weren't taking them for credit. They were just coming cause they wanted to learn. Uh, and I would, I would teach, controversial theological ideas and people would get all up in arms. Not everyone, but you know, a, a number of the, a number of the students, particularly those coming from more conservative backgrounds, I think who hadn't been taught how to ask questions. Yeah. And so I would, I would go like, I would go back to my little hole and I would wrestle. I, I think like, why, why am I encountering such like naked hostility in presenting these ideas? Because I was raised in a similar context and even educated in a similar context in my undergrad. And yet I found the ideas that I was presenting liberating, not threatening. So I I was trying to understand the disconnect, why they seem only threatened and they seem not to want to give any credence to these ideas. 
And, and so I, I essentially just began to trace my own journey. Like, well, well, how did I move from point A to point Q or whatever? You know, what were the steps along the way? And I was able to highlight, well, this conversation with a professor or this moment when I was, you know, doing a, a, a devotional time or this particular encounter in a worship gathering. And I, I began to sort of mark those, those moments on. And I realized, like, I, I went on a journey. It wasn't like I was just walking down the Damascus Road and a light from heaven blinded me and, God revealed all of this to me. And I was like, Oh, if you say so big guy, right. Well, that right, right, doesn't right. how it worked for me. It was, it was this journey. And so I began to change how I taught those encounters where I would invite them to move on this journey. So, so instead of me lecturing, they became discussion groups where I would, and I would, put out a list of questions on the table and then they would sit there with the Bibles open, reading through the questions. And of course I'm, I'm so guiding it, right. Cause I wrote the questions and I set up the room and I'm walking around, but they, I, I basically recreated in those, you know, two hour classes, the sort of journeys that I went on with these ideas. And I found that when, when they could ask these questions for themselves and begin to go on these journeys for themselves, they became a lot more open to, to these ideas. And so then when I, went into full-time preaching, I tried to model the sermons and the series on the same things. You know, what are the, if we treat this as a journey from A to A to Q, what are the steps along this journey and how to, both within the individual messages and then along the series, how do we, how do we create signposts for people to, to feel like they know where they're going they have some orientation and, and they know that they're moving somewhere, right? So I begin the messages where they are and I invite them to come to where we feel like the scripture is where, where we, we feel the spirit is calling. Yeah. That's, that's good stuff. I, I appreciate the intentionality that I, I appreciate intentionality anyway. So I love the way you've constructed that. Um, well, w- with that in mind, then let's talk about like your, your week to week as nitty gritty as you want to get, like what's your week to week of when you've got this, you know what step of the movement in, you are in this particular series that you're preaching, yeah. you know, and how far advanced do you work on each individual sermon and what's that week to week look like? So I write a month ahead of time and that is, uh, that's primarily for my worship team and my creative team. Like I want them to have mm-hmm. as much information as possible uh, to be able to feel like they're creating a worship experience that is harmonious with the message um, the, the first church where I was a full-time preacher, I, I moved into full-time preaching about nine months after I got there. And so I was there long enough for the worship pastor who he had, he had two preaching pastors that he worked under who both often wrote their sermons on Saturday or Sunday before. <laughs> and so I just remember he came in one Monday and we had, we had become friends enough that he, he felt like he could complain to me. And he said, uh, I feel like 95% of my job is a waste of time. And I said, wow, why? And he said, well, because, you know, I'll ask these guys on Monday what they're preaching about. They'll give me some vague, eh, you know, whatever. And so I'll, I'll do the best job I can to pick songs and stuff that, that align with that. And then it's, it's just a crapshoot whether when they actually get up there to preach on Sunday, that's even in the neighborhood of what they told me on Monday. Yeah. He said, so I, I feel like I work so hard to support them and to uh, create something that invites the congregation into the same moment that they're trying to where they're trying to meet the congregation. And then it's, you know, m- more times than not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a waste of time. And that really, like that really, uh, 
stayed with me because here you had someone who loved what he was doing and felt a strong pastoral call. And he felt as though he were being, uh, uh, kept from that by his pastoral leaders. And so I, I made a commitment then that when I took over preaching, I basically went to him and said, how, how far in advance would you like to have the sermons? And he kind of laughed at me and he was like, a month would be great. And I was like, okay. So I just started working. I mean, I, you know, I, I took over week to week, so it wasn't like I had, I didn't, I could, you know, but I, I just, I worked really hard for about a month and a half writing, you know, a sermon and a half each week until I got a month ahead. And then we just tried to stay a month ahead. And that's been my model ever since then. So, uh, yeah, so I write a month ahead and typically the Thursday of the week before and the Monday, the week of writing is my research and outlining time. Now, again, this is, this is another reason why series are great right now. We're working through the patriarchs in the old Testament for the summer. I say right now I'm writing them. We don't actually start that series until next week, but those are the sermons we're writing right now. And so, you know, doing the overall research on the patriarchal period and on uh, preaching Genesis and all of that, you don't have to do that every week for the same sermon, for the same sermon series, right? Like once you have that sort of framework in hand, then you're just dealing with the individual text. So that's, that's another really nice thing about, about series through particular books at least. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I have a, I have a very, uh, I guess, detailed outlining process that I go through and that I take my preaching team through whenever they're preaching, uh, and a lot, a lot of the reason for that is one, it just helps me when I sit down to write it also, I think when you're using a preaching team, the danger can be that the sermons are so inconsistent between pastors that, uh, it's hard. It's actually hard for the congregation to engage with someone who's not the primary preacher. Uh, and so having the way I described it to my preaching team is using the same outline creates like a skeletal system of the sermons. That's always the same. Yeah, and, and then the individual personalities of the preachers get to flesh that out. But there's something consistent in the DNA of the message that 95% of our congregation would never be able to articulate. But it becomes a it becomes sort of a rhythm of of the church. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, most of my preaching, oh, and my preaching team, none of them are vocational pastors. Uh, my youth pastor is one of them. He's, he's a volunteer pastor in our ordination process, but, but he has a full-time job elsewhere. Uh, we have a, we have a seminary professor. We have a couple of educators. We have a guy who is a contractor. You know, we have, we just have a, a wide variety of people in the congregation that have been gifted and called to preach. And so the, the outlining process actually gives them a lot of confidence because they don't feel like they're just sitting down and trying to make like write a whole sermon off the top of their head, right? Like they, they we've worked through it together and outlined together. So I, I also do the exact same thing with all of my sermons. I have little Moleskine notebooks filled up with sermon outlines that I just do every week. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a combination of uh, Andy Stanley's five preaching questions, the made to stick acronym that they use for making ideas memorable, Chip and Dan Heath, uh, Heath brothers, that's their book. And then uh, Nancy Duarte has a book called resonate oh, yeah. that. Yes. Okay. Yes. So her, her uh, outlining process, the movements up, up and down from the world of what is the world of what could be. So it's, it's sort of all cobbled together in this Frankenstein outline process uh, that, that we use. And so I, I do that on Thursday and Monday, get that all together. And then Tuesday's my writing day. So I just, I get up, uh, try to have my butt in the chair by eight o'clock and I just 
right until its first draft is done. Uh, once it's done, I dump it into a Google Doc and send it to my preaching team. And then they have three weeks that they can get in there and edit it, offer commentary, talk about what's working and what's not. And then Wednesday, uh, following you know the Tuesday, I pull out the sermon for the upcoming Sunday. And I always, I post my sermons on my blog before they come out. So I take the main, I edit the manuscript, I create a discussion guide and I put all that up on my website. So that if people in the congregation want to read the sermon before they come to church, they can do that. Um, hmm. And that's then, a first. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody else has done that. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So that's, that's all about learning styles, right? Like there are people right. who are not auditory learners and actually most people yeah. are not auditory learners. And so uh, it's funny because I, I have several artists in my preaching team and they hate it because they feel like they're giving away the show before the show, you know, right. <laughs> they like the big dramatic aha reveal at the end. And, um, and, and I, I just assure them, I say, if, if you write a sermon, I also tell them like, you know, it's the whole, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them model. Yeah. Uh, so they also don't like giving away the, 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 the meat of the message at the beginning. And I, I just, I make them anyway, because again, I think, when you're watching a movie, that's one thing, but when you're, when you're preaching, it's a very different, we have different goals in mind. And so, uh, people need, if you tell people where you're going ahead of time, it gives them some orientation so that it actually, it actually makes all of the content of the message more meaningful, not less meaningful, uh, because they, they sort of, they sort of have an orientation and a track in their mind of where they can hang stuff instead of just trying to hold this big mess of what we're talking about until the end and hoping it makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I do the sermon preview on Wednesday. And then also on Wednesday, I go ahead and I memorize from uh, my manuscript. So I I turn my manuscript back into like a very crude, you know, Roman numeral one, letter A kind of outline. Yeah. And then on Saturday night and Sunday morning, I memorize that outline. And that usually takes me about an hour or two hours to memorize. Uh for than the preaching preaching on Sunday morning. So so Thursday and Monday, you know, you talked about that's where you're just taking whatever I assume like exegetical work or yeah. illustrations that are coming to mind and putting them in the structure that you already have. And then come Tuesday, so when you say first draft, are you doing a full on manuscript? Correct. Yeah, it ends up okay. being about Anywhere between 2,200 and 3,300 words. Because I don't, I don't worry about length when I'm writing a first draft. That, that'll come in the editing uh, a month from now. Um, so. So, it's, so it's still, by the time you circle back to it a month later, you know, and you've got all these other ideas, does it still feel familiar or are you almost relearning it? How much do you find that you're tweaking things that you go, you know, because... Part of my process is I capture ideas, you know, a few months or a, at least a few weeks out. And sometimes when I come back and I look at the ideas, I go, I, I don't have nearly as much interest or passion or that doesn't make nearly as much sense as it did to me when I, you know, wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the but, great thing about the, uh, about giving yourself space from it, right? Is you're like, right. you can, you can see the seams, you can see the ideas that aren't working as well as you thought they were. And, and honestly, I would never tell my preaching team this. I'm kidding. I, I tell them this, but uh, <laughs> even when I'm when I'm re-outlining it, that's a wonderful tool to find the things that don't work, right? Uh, because oftentimes I'll find there's something that I just I cannot remember what comes after you know letter B number two. For the life of me, I can't remember that number three. And what that usually means is it's not actually an organic transition. 
there's yeah, an idea yeah. that I shoved in there because I liked it, not because it's a good idea or it's not an idea that makes sense there. And so I will, I will often just cut it even, even when I'm into memorizing on Sunday morning, you know, and, and yeah. that doesn't affect anyone except, you know, it's like a deleted scene for the people that read it ahead of time. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good little flow. Like if I can't, and I, I do do something similar as far as that is like, I get everything down to a similar outline, but if I can't remember how this point, what it moves on to next, then nobody's going to be able to follow it. Like exactly. if it's not simple enough for me to move through it. How am I going to expect anybody to remember it or follow yep. along even in the moment? Yep. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So when I'm editing, I mean, oftentimes I'll cut out entire chunks. I mean this, oh, here's this idea that it's, uh, it's like an interesting thing, but it doesn't ultimately need to be in there. And I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for a manuscript that's 2,400 to 2,500 words because I found when I'm preaching from memory, that's about my time. Yeah. So you, you've teased the structure. Can you at all like walk through the structure simply? here or is it or is there too much to it uh, you know you talked about the outline that you follow each time and have your teaching yeah, team do so okay so yeah i'll do i'll do the best i can and, and please ask clarifying questions so we begin with uh, if 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 your listeners have not read nancy duarte's resonate they absolutely should because it's i'm it's assuming so good. not the first time it's come up on this podcast doesn't sound like so not often um, though but yeah it's great it's it's so interesting because she wrote it she wrote it as a business book. It's a book about how to communicate. Her first book, uh, so she, Duarte Design is a company that does slides. So like when when Mark Zuckerberg does the Facebook shareholders annual meeting, or when uh, Chick Fil A does that, or when Al Gore does a uh, keynote somewhere, they hire Duarte Design to design their slides for their keynote yeah. presentations. So her first book was called Slideology, and it was basically how to make slides that don't make you want to gouge your own eyeball out. Um, then her second book, Resonate, came out. And in the introduction to Resonate, she said, so I just sort of assumed you had content that was worth putting on a slide. Um, <laughs> maybe you right. don't. So here's a book about how to create really compelling content. And and it's it's great because it's it, this and Made to Stick, the book that I mentioned, uh, is similar. It's a business book. But these are not books about how to generate ideas. They're how to make your ideas compelling and interesting. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of preachers struggle. It's not, it's not the Bible's fault. The Bible's a unparalleled book, right? But but we often, I think, struggle with how to communicate the truth of scripture in a way that's engaging and interesting to our contemporary audiences. And so those I found those two tools to be invaluable in that. So uh, Nancy Duarte in Resonate uh, talks about the world of what is and the world of what could be. She bases it all on uh, the hero's journey. Uh, uh, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Thank you. I was going to say Joseph Conrad, and that's different. That's hard of darkness. <laughs> so not that at all. <laughs> so she she says, uh, I tell my preaching team this all the time too. She says, we often think of ourselves as speakers as Luke Skywalker, right? We're going to go up there and win the day and be the big hero. She said, but, but that's the, exactly the wrong way to think about a, a, a speaking moment. In a speaking moment, your audience are the Luke Skywalkers. They're the ones that have left their ordinary world of moisture farming and come in to listen to you in this special place, right? Whether it's a business conference or a, a Sunday morning worship gathering or whatever. And they're looking for something that they can take back with them into the into their real everyday worlds that will change things for them. If that's not a wonderful definition of the gospel, I don't know what it is, right? It's something that, that changes our world. Uh, and not just the world of church in worship, but the world everywhere. 
And so she yeah. says, you are not Luke Skywalker, you're Master Yoda. You're the one who's training them and get, equipping them to go back out and, and to overcome and succeed in their everyday lives. So uh, she, she bounces back and forth in her, uh, in her method between the world of what is, which is the world that the, your listeners are living in, and then the world of what could be, which is how things would be different if they adopted your, uh, your, your big idea. So I'm a big fan of one point preaching. Uh, there's one central idea we want to communicate today. If you have three points, then make it a three week series. Like that's, I, you know, that's, I just think that's easier. Uh, I, I think it's better teaching that lets you scaffold automatically. Um, and so, yeah, take your big idea, communicate it in a way that's going to win. And so we actually also, I have, uh, I think I mentioned I have two educators on my preaching team. One of them is actually an instructional coach. So she doesn't even teach in the classroom. She teaches teachers how to teach better. And so I work with her a lot on what are, what are some, what are some things that are true about the way adults learn new information that we could apply on our Sunday mornings. So one of the things she brought up for me is that adults tend to learn in 15 minute chunks and so in any kind of adult learning environment, you should do something for at most 15, maybe 20 minutes and then change and do something different. Well, our mm-hmm. sermons were 25 minutes long. And she said, the problem with that is after about 15 minutes, people start to check out. Uh, they not, not on purpose, not because they're lazy or mentally, un, you know, undisciplined or whatever. That's just, that's what adult brains do. And so we, I kind of looked at our message, our structure, and I, I broke it up. And so we moved the first five-ish minutes of preaching to the call to worship. So we we do an opening song and then whoever's preaching that day gets up, introduces themselves, and then they, they begin with a story or an anecdote or an illustration uh, that transitions then from the world of what is into the world of what could be. We connect it into faith and, and then we invite people, say, today, this is what we're going to be talking about. We basically give them the big idea of the message. We say, we're gonna, so we're going to begin by, by celebrating this God who is present in this idea in this way. And we make the call to worship this like really intentional movement into and we tie the worship into the preaching stuff very very explicitly, and, and so that's really early in the service. Like how much has happened? We've done that? one Not song. Much? Yeah. Okay. So it's five minutes in. Yeah, and and again, it, it's a call to worship, but we we have we've we've preached a little bit instead of just instead of just saying like, uh, you know, we're here today. The the sort of the sort of generic. Uh, call to worship that could be put at the beginning of any worship gathering. Like ours is very specifically tailored to here's what we're going to be doing today. Here's the, here's the particular incarnation of the good news we're going to be celebrating. We don't say it like that, right? But that theologically, that's what we're doing. And then we invite people to worship sort of as a response, even to that good news. So that people's worship is, you know, we're, we're celebrating this God who is present with us in this way, or we're, um, you know, we're, we're, we're finding God present with us in this moment in, in, in some way. So then we do our music and then when we get up to preach, uh, we, we dive right into the series because we've already done the setup. We say, okay, so this is where we are as a congregation right now. Here's what's come before. Here's what we're talking about today. Uh, and then we move into our scripture. And this is uh, earlier. I teased like one of the big changes that I made to my preaching structure. This is one of the biggest things that, that we've done in our preaching. So when we move into the scripture, uh, we we will tell people so open your Bibles or you know tab you click over in your smart devices to this particular yeah, yeah. scripture today. But then as they're doing that, we give all of the uh, what we, I guess what we would call the exegetical work. 
we, we explain the cultural context. We even tell them specific things that are going to happen in the text to be watching out for. And we, we, we do that because uh, back in my last church in, in Dayton, Ohio, where I was preaching, I had one of my good friends come up to me after a sermon on John 14. And uh, she's, she's incredibly faithful. Uh, one, one of the more spiritual folks in the congregation, one of those people who is always doing a regular quiet time, that kind of stuff. And she said, your sermon was so good. It was so brilliant. These things, you know, all these real flowery things that preachers love to hear. You know, I was just like feeling very puffed up. (laughs) And then she said, like, she just completely ruined my whole month. She said, you know, I could have read that text a hundred times and never seen in there what you brought out today. When I listen to you preach, it makes me just not want to even bother reading my Bible because I feel like I'll never understand it the way you do. Yeah, that'll ruin a month. And I was like, well, I quit. Because, <laughs> you know, my goal in preaching is never to say, look how smart I am. Aren't you glad that you have me as your pastor so I can unlock the mysteries of this arcane tome of wisdom for you? Uh, it, it's it, I want people to fall in love with the scripture and feel as though it's it's for them. And, and it's something that God, where God has met them. And so... I, I wrestled because I thought, oh, well, I don't think the answer is just like stay away from the, the commentary stuff, you know, uh, and, and the compromise that I landed on was is a cheat. But now instead of reading the scripture and then doing all of the exegetical work, I'm going to do all the exegetical work before we even get into the scripture. And I'm going to say, so as we read it, watch for this, watch for this and watch for this. Now let's read it together. So I've literally just explained that all to them. But now mm-hmm. their experience of reading it as we move through the text is they're going to say like, oh, yeah, he said to watch for that. And I see it now. And sometimes I'll even stop and say, see, this is what I was talking about. And so their experience is more of, oh, yeah, I do understand what this is, uh, even though I even though they only understand it because I literally just told them and uh, the experience like the 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 sensation that they have reading through the text is not like this is weird. I don't understand it. It's more of this is neat. Like I get it. Oh, this is yeah. cool. You know, and that's, that's the feeling that I want them to have as they're moving through the text. And I, that, that, that can only happen. I think when we, when we do that exegetical work first. So, I mean, I know a lot of congregations and a lot of denominations will begin the sermon with the reading of scripture. And I've just found that in our modern context, that actually, that has become a barrier for people feeling like they can understand scripture for themselves. And so we, we sort of, we sort of moved everything around in our sermon so that we could, we could do the scripture. It comes like in the middle. And we, we've even had some folks who have visited from more traditional denominations who have said like, it was an awful long time before you read any scripture. Yeah. (laughs) We're like, yep. (laughs) That was actually, I mean, yes, you're right, but sorry. Yeah. And that makes a ton of sense because people who are originally reading scripture have so much backstory and understanding when they read it that we don't have now. Right. And we'll make that joke. We'll say now, if if we all were fluent in ancient Greek and had learned ancient, like uh, this, even this, the most recent sermon before recording, I preached on John one. And I said, you know, if we were all experts in ancient Greek poetry, which anyone in here, none of us. Okay. Well, let me, you know, let's walk through some structure that'll help you understand what we're about to read. Uh, and everyone kind of laughs, right? Cause they're like, Oh, thank you. Like you're giving us tools so that we can understand this together. Yeah. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, so that's kind of the midpoint of the, the message. And then uh, you know, we move back into contemporary application. We talk about how this affects us in our everyday lives. This is where we'll tell any some kind of a story. Uh that's if the story is not carried through from the call to worship, which a lot if, if I can if I can find a story that fits from the call to worship to the end, that's even better. It's like that Paul Harvey and now the rest of the yeah. story right, right. sort of movement. 
uh, again, that's you, you don't always find a story that lets you do that. And, and that's just sort of the tragedy of it. And then we always end with a call to the table. So we, well, we don't end actually, we sort of, we break the sermon again and do a call to the table. So we try to make that, that middle part of preaching about 15 minutes, because that's about the limit of the adult attention span. And we try to make our call to worship about at that 15 minute mark or call, call to the table rather. And we practice open table. Uh, we're, we're Wesleyan. Uh, Wesley called uh, communion the evangelizing sacrament. And so we, uh, we believe people can actually come to know Christ's love through receiving Christ's love at the table. And so we, the way we frame the call to the table is essentially somewhat like an old timey altar call where, where we say, uh, if this is true about you, then you're welcome to come to the table today. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, it does become a kind of invitation to conversion, though it may not be conversion to Christianity. It may be just a step towards that, you know, um, a conversion away from the world of what is into the world of what could be a, a conversion that's that's taking a step closer to God. And the, the language we use a lot is uh, whatever your next right step is, um, because we think whether someone who's come in and they're very skeptical about faith and have no church background, they have a step to take closer to God. And so does the person who's been in church for like 150 years, you know, and has the whole Bible memorized and whatever, like they still have a next step towards God too. And so we, we provide some, before we come to the table, we usually do a prayer of examine where we either we'll just provide about two or three minutes of silence, or we'll ask some guided questions and then provide silence for folks to consider what their next step is. Um, I do that instead of a lot of heavy application, uh, just yeah. because I, w- again, we have a very spiritually diverse congregation and we want them to listen to the spirit. And we believe that if, if people will be open to hear from the spirit, the spirit will speak to them. So uh, we do that. We, we receive communion together. We have a, a final song, like a responsive song. And then we actually do the last bit of our preaching, usually about another two or three minutes uh, before we send people out with a blessing. And that's often where we'll give them some homework or a scripture to memorize or, you know, something to do a, a Lectio Divina with this week or a prayer exercise or whatever. And then we'll send them out with a blessing. Yeah. So I, I told you, I listened to one of yours Um this morning getting ready for this and i definitely picked up on that first break i didn't even pick up on some of these others were you know disconnected from each other but but i like that is that is that 15 minute time frame you know that your educate educational educator uh you know has, has talked to you about is that been a long-standing thing or is, we've that, been doing is it the for understanding a... that's new no we've... i don't mean i don't mean in the life of your church i mean in the life of culturally oh. Uh, Have we always had that attention span? I don't know. I mean, I would say at least in our modern culture, yes. Like, I don't think that's in the last, I don't think it's like a millennials are ruining attention spans thing or something like that. (laughs) Um, It's always the millennials fault, isn't uh, it? Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's funny because when we first made the change, it's been about a year ago at Catalyst. I, I did it for about a month and then I started asking folks cause we didn't, we didn't like explain it or tell anyone. We just kind of did it. And I asked people if they noticed and they said, well, like I noticed your, your sermons feel a lot shorter, which they're not like they're, they're actually the same link. Like we can tell with podcast timing, right? Like we can tell that when you, when you add everything back together, it's still the same amount of time. And they said, your sermons feel really short. And I would say like, like in a bad way, do you feel like you're missing out? And they're like, no, that's the thing. Like it's all there. It just feels like it goes by in no time at all. Hmm. Uh, 
And I noticed too, like uh, a while ago, I, I was visiting another church. Uh, just I was off on a Sunday and visiting another church, and the pastor preached for about forty-five minutes. He's a really great speaker. Like I was, I was sort of a little jealous and taking notes, right? Like what I could do better. And then, and then I noticed that I was playing a game on my phone. It was kind of what I was right. It was like I kind of like oh, like I'm being bad Christian right now, like playing on my phone in church or scrolling through Facebook or something. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like, he's such a good, and he was still, he was still, still going, still preaching, still really engaging. But like, I had missed a good five minutes of his sermon. And I noticed that I was about, I was about 23 or 24 minutes into the sermon. So like just past that 15 minute mark, I had just like unconsciously checked out and started playing on my phone. And that's as somebody who's, a very intentional thinker and wants to pay attention yeah. to the craft itself. I was taking notes. Still struggling. Yeah. I was taking notes. And yeah, I, I was like, that was when it really recon. I mean, we had been doing it at that point for six months at Catalyst and it really reconfirmed for me, you know, this is, this is a real thing. You know, this is, it, it really does make a big difference. So how much are you finding? So going back to what we talked about, you know, at, at the very beginning, as your, talking about reimagining or reshaping, you know, what Sundays look like and how they're more equipping people. What is, what are you out of this simple structure? Are you going to try to nuance differently or is it already in place? I think it's going to be more content than anything. So we, we may, we may beef up the, the assignment blessing time at the end. That's just, that's hard because it's kind of like when, uh, you know, when, the, when, when everyone starts packing up their papers in class and it like, it doesn't matter if the teachers finish lecturing or not, like, people know it's time to go and they've kind of quit paying attention. It's the same sort of thing. It's like, once we're done with the last song, like people are ready, they're thinking about lunch already. So uh, it's, it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to do too much more in that space. Uh, So it's going to be more uh, at this point, it's going to be more of our content that is shifting than the structure I think uh, the other thing we're the other thing we're working towards is uh, pairing because some of these big ideas that are particularly difficult uh, need more than a lecture style piece of communication for people to own them themselves. No matter how dialogical the lecture feels, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about Duarte's method is it feels very conversational. Because when you drop back down into the world of what is to offer objections to the big idea, if you do it well and if you're careful, it feels like people. It feels like people feel like you're talking to them because you're raising the objections that they've had in their own minds and then answering those objections. And so again, we we get that all the time with our preaching. People say it feels like it feels like we're just sitting in your living room and we're having a conversation. It's very approachable, very uh, you know, very connectable or connected, whatever. That's great. But some of these bigger ideas, uh, like if we're, if we're going to talk about racial justice or if we're going to talk about culture change or if we're going to talk about what scripture is, they need something more conversational. They need to be able to actually ask their own questions. They need to, they need to be able to talk through an idea. And so we did it last year where we talked about race. We had an evening event at the end of the six week series where, and for the whole six weeks, we kept saying all of the stuff that we're doing in this series, we used Sung, Sung Chan Ra's book on prophetic lament. We went through the book of lamentations yeah, yeah. and we kept saying, you know, we're working through this, this process of lament at an individual level, but it all has cultural and systemic application. And it actually will help us do a lot better with race. 
we're not doing that on Sunday morning. We're going to do it on the Sunday night event at the end of it. We had about half of our church show up for the Sunday night event. And it was everyone was around tables. And I had a, sorry, that broke up a little bit. Oh, uh, sorry. So uh, had what show up? we had about half of our church show up for this, oh, wow. uh, this okay. Sunday night event, which we don't do Sunday night church. Uh, our teens, uh, that's when they meet. And so it was, that was actually like, we, we were not sure if anyone was going to show up. Uh, but we had, you know, we had a panel of experts uh, to discuss uh, people who were educators who had dealt with all of this uh, people from our community and people from the community at large. And yeah. then, uh, and then it, and it, everyone was at round tables. It was a two hour long thing. It was guided conversation with, within big group panel at stuff. And I cut it off at two hours and there was this like wail of anger. People were like, no, mm-hmm. like we could have easily gone two more hours people because people were into it. Yeah. Like they were yeah. just finding it really meaningful and helpful. So we like that model too, of trying to, as we make some big changes, uh, particularly when we have stuff that is more difficult for folks and they need some extra space to engage it, uh, creating those evening events that, uh, that are parallel to the Sunday morning thing. Yeah. Well, uh, JR, I know that we are rapidly running out of time here. Um, this, this is such good stuff. Like, uh, this is why I get energized doing this podcast because you, you're very thoughtful about it all. And I really appreciate that. Um, and especially because you enjoy resonate as much as I do, because that kind of changed my <laughs> preaching. And <laughs> it, so it sounds like it did for you too. But I, I do want to leave a little bit of space here at the end, just because, I mean, you're, you're kind of like a prolific putting your ideas out there kind of guy between uh, your books. And I, I think you have 17 podcasts, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> roughly. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I understand some of them are podcasts you've done that were like, short term and stuff like that. But just talk a little bit about other places where you're doing things where people can find you online. And if you want to talk specifically about your your book, that'd be great too. Awesome. I would love that. Yeah. So if you can spell my last name, which is a feat in and of itself, you can probably find me on the internet. And you're, it's you're uh, breaking F-O- up. It, so hopefully it's recording on oh, your no. end, but let's try that again. Okay. So if you can spell my name, you should be able to find where I am on the internet. It is uh, F-O-R-A-S- T-E-R-O-S, J-R Foresteros. Everywhere I am online, I'm J-R Foresteros. So Twitter, Facebook, uh, I'm on I'm on Instagram. If you like seeing pictures of smoked meats, that's what I <laughs> tend to put on Instagram most. Um, and then, yeah, I do have a couple of podcasts. So I do one called The Story Men with a couple of other authors. And we mainly interview authors. Huh. And and we talk about what books, uh, what what's... I, so we do a couple of things. We do some deep dives on their books, but then we also like to bring on authors and talk about like other stuff that they're interested in. Because typically when you're an author and you get invited on podcasts, you have to talk about the same thing over and over and over again, which is great because it's promoting your book, but also you kind of get like you're answering the same 25 questions over and over. So we recently had on Justin Lee who wrote the book torn um, engaging or moving the church beyond the game and Christian debate. We had him on to talk about board games. (laughs) So we just like spent a whole episode talking about our favorite board games with Justin Lee. And he was like, this is so nice because I never get to talk about board games, even though I love board games. Uh, So that's Storyman. And then I do one with three uh, Nazarene female pastors uh, uh, that's a Wesleyan feminist theology podcast called in all things charity. And we do a mix of just the four of us talking about, you know, talking shop, talking church. And then we also bring on authors and experts to talk about theological issues or even practical issues. Like we did an episode a, a while ago on security in your kids area. And 
that's an area that so many churches never think about, but it's so important uh, if you like care about kids or whatever. Uh, so uh, that was that, that was that that's, that's, uh, in all things charity is that podcast. And then um, my book is called empathy for the devil, finding ourselves in the villains of scripture. And it's from InterVarsity press. And essentially I took seven of the Bible's villains and I asked, why did they do the things that they did? Because I started with the assumption that no one is ever the villain in their own mind. Uh, everyone does what is right, uh, what they think is best for them. So I took, you know, Cain, Delilah, Jezebel, Herod, uh, Herodias, Judas, and Satan. And I reimagined their big moments in fiction. So I did like a short fictional retelling of Cain killing Abel, of Sam, uh, Delilah cutting Samson's hair, et cetera, et cetera. And the goal was not to exonerate or to defend or to say, you know, Judas did the right thing when he betrayed Jesus. Like, of course not. Uh, it was just if, uh, what can we learn when we try to understand them and, and find ourselves in them? Because when, when I put myself in their, uh, in their sandals, so to speak, I found myself learning, uh, tremendously, uh, about my own faith from them. So that's, it's a, it's a fun book. It's been out about six months. Yeah. Empathy for the devil. Yeah. And a very fun cover. <laughs> that was that was all my publisher yeah i i actually the publisher is the one that even went with the title my agent made me chop it under a different title because he said empathy for the devil was too hot for christian shelves and InterVarsity press said that they liked it and then they gave me that cover they they're a dream yeah, to work yeah. with, man they're amazing all right so one last question to wrap this up a very difficult question you might have already revealed the answer to it but uh, you told me before we started recording, you're from Kansas City, and now you live outside Dallas. So, Kansas City barbecue or Texas barbecue? Listen, I will always be a Kansas City boy. Always, <laughs> Arthur Bryant's Gates, they're 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 coming home. But I lived in Ohio before I moved here. I lived in Ohio for five years, and it is a barbecue desert. <laughs> I bet so. I am, I am still just happy to live somewhere where they know what to do with a piece of meat. And, uh, I actually own, I have a smoker now and I've, I've been doing my own barbecue for a few years as well. So I, I, now I can go anywhere, but I love, I just love living where you can get good barbecue. It's, it's a dream. Look at you skirting that question. <laughs> no, Kansas city. If you have All right, to, Okay. Okay. The choice is Kansas city, but I'm just saying I like, there's so much delicious barbecue down yeah. here. So it's, it's nice because when I would go before when I lived in Ohio and I would go to Kansas city, it was like a man in a desert finding an oasis, right? Like I was like, Oh, thank God. Finally. Now, now it's just like, Oh, now I get to go to my favorite place and eat barbecue. But like I had really good barbecue last week too. So like, you know what I mean? I it's just, mean. it's really a different experience. I have no yet, shortage so. of opportunities for barbecue myself. So I know what you mean. So I've never been to Franklin's. That's one of my goals. Now that I live here is the pilgrimage. All right. So I'll just say that I, I know you got to go, but, uh, I live in Austin. I've never been to Franklin. I do. Well, I'm bivocational part-time web developer. I've worked a little bit on the Franklin website <laughs> and I've never been to Franklin. What's up with that? So that's it. I'll come down Come on, and we can get some lawn chairs, yeah. sit in line. Right. That's a, uh, I'm in. Let's do it. Like Let's not do it in the summer. It's hot. Let's do it in the fall. <laughs> I'm, I'm that, whatever you say, man, I'm there. All right. Sounds good. Well, it, so it's great to meet you, but it'll be even more greater to meet you in person. Barbecue makes everything better. It sure does. <laughs> Thanks, JR. Pleasure to have you on. 
It was so great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That was a good one, wasn't it, friends? JR has some novel ideas that he brought to the podcast, and it was really a pleasure to talk with him. I'm hoping I get to meet up with him sometime since he's only a couple of hours away. So thank you, JR. Again, uh, patreon.com slash sermonsmith to support the podcast. And of course, show notes are available at sermonsmith.com, and you can always find us on social media at twitter.com slash sermonsmith or search for sermonsmith on Facebook. Thanks for spreading the word. Have a good one.